Um, I don't know why. We're going to be looking at James chapter 3, beginning in 13. We're going to be looking at the topic of wisdom this morning. And for some reason, the first thing that came to my mind was the Three Stooges saying, Wise Jack. Um, I have no idea. I think possibly it's more because um, I'm really wanting to engage our pastor in a little bit of slapstick. So does anybody have a, a hammer, maybe a seltzer bottle? You see, last week, Steve came up and preached on the beginning of, of James chapter 3, which... Let me just read chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brother, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And then Steve says, Hey, Josh, why don't you come preach? Um, so, welcome to the pulpit, right? Um, let's just say that I took that as an encouragement to keep things very expositional this morning. I'm going to really focus on the text, uh, which lends well to my personality um, and, and the passage itself. Um, so James chapter 3, we're going to be starting in verse 13. Uh, so as you open your Bibles, um, let me just say that I've been really encouraged uh, by our study in the book of James. I hope you guys have been as well. Um, several weeks ago, Adam was preaching in chapter 1. He kind of grouped scripture passages into, into three types. He said that there are those that speak to the head, those that speak to the heart, and then those that speak to the hands. Um, and as, as Adam shared, the book of James is, is very much a book that speaks to the hands. It talks about... Uh, action on, on, the, on the part of the believer. Um, it's a call to action, and that's the title of our, uh, of our series, Faith Does. So the book of James as a whole is 208 verses, and 60 of those verses are a direct command. They're a call to action that requires a response on the part of us as believers. So the book, it serves as a picture of what faith looks like in action in the life of the believer. See, so throughout Scripture, uh, Steve talked about it a little bit, spirit and truth, right? We hear a lot of truth. There's a lot of doctrine and theology uh, throughout Scripture. But ultimately, if our doctrine never finds itself on display, then, then what, what use are we to God? If our faith finds no function, then we're basically useless, right? We're just a bunch of head knowledge. So over the last eight weeks, we've looked at what does that mean? What does faith and action look like? What does faith do? So chapter one, we looked at it, it, it perseveres trials. It defeats temptation. Um, as Adam shared, it pursues righteousness. Um, beginning in chapter two, it accepts others. Um, and then Ramazan came and, and shared a very, very appropriate message uh, on the Good Samaritan and what it, what it means uh, to not show partiality toward others. It's made evident in the works of the believer. As, as uh, Steve shared last week, it tames the tongue and this week, we're going to look at faith acts wisely. Uh, so would you join me as we pray and, and, uh, and look at our scriptures? Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Father, that it's not just um, head knowledge. Father, that, that you require a response from us, Lord, that you, you want us to live out your truth, to love our neighbor, Father, to care for those. And I uh, just pray this morning that it was, as, as we open your word, Father, that your spirit would illuminate your word, Father, that we would find a way to take your truth, Lord, and apply it to our lives, Father. Not just to be something that, that we hold internally or as head knowledge, Father, um, but something that we can share and, and, and love your people with, Father. So bless this morning. Um, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your word that you've given us. In Jesus' name. So I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. So beginning in, in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? 
By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James opens with a, a simple question. Who is wise and understanding among you? So let me ask you, Mission View, who is wise and understanding among you? As you ponder that question, what qualities does that elicit or solicit in your mind? As you're thinking about that, do you consider yourself wise? Maybe the person next to you. What are the characteristics that you're using to measure the quality of wisdom? We're going to look at that today, and James is going to help us out. But let, let's first, let's define the difference between knowledge and wisdom. So knowledge represents facts, right? Webster says it's, it's the fact or condition of knowing something with familiarity, whereas wisdom is knowledge. So what we just talked about, those facts and wisdom, um, facts and, and uh, facts, <laughs> Wisdom is knowledge that is gained by having many experiences. So knowledge is the accumulation of information, whereas wisdom is what you do with that information. How does it impact the way you interact with people every day, the way that you live? And more importantly, might I propose that the source of our knowledge will have a direct correlation to the way in which we live out that wisdom. So just like in chapter 2, if you remember when James was addressing faith, um, faith does, right? The, the title of our series. Um, James is saying the same thing now about wisdom. He's saying, show me. Show me your faith. Show me your wisdom by your acts. You see, true wisdom, like true faith, manifests itself in action. It's vital, it is practical, and it's observable. It's not a question of professional competence, but one of practical godliness. So James asks us, who is wise and understanding among you? Now, in asking the question, James is concerned that we might be a little too eager to jump up and say, hey, I'm wise. And so he brings us back down to earth and he checks our motives. So beginning in verse 14, he says, but, but wait, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to, false to the truth. So what James is saying here, <clears throat> excuse me, so what is James saying here? The verse, unfortunately, reads a little bit confusing in the English. But basically what he's saying is true wisdom demonstrates itself in acts of meekness, just as he has stated in verse 3. Um, but if you're operating in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that's not wisdom. So don't lie to yourself and call it wisdom. I, I like the J.B. Phillips paraphrase. Um, it reads this way. It says, are there some wise and understanding among you? then your lives will be an example of the humility that is born of true wisdom. But if your heart is full of rivalry and bitter jealousy, then do not boast of your wisdom. Don't deny the truth that you must recognize in your inmost heart. So from this point, James is going to break out two types of wisdom for us, godly wisdom and earthly wisdom. And uh, if you look in your bulletins, um, 
you'll, you'll see something that my children make fun of me about. So I'm a, I'm a very analytical person. I'm a CPA by trade. So I, I, I like to think in boxes and very literally, literal, literal, literal. Um, so James lays this out. He takes godly wisdom and earthly wisdom, and then he's going to teach us three things about each. He's going to talk about its origin, its operation, and its outcome. So we start on the negative. Uh, James begins, uh, verse 15, with earthly wisdom. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now, when I study scripture, I, I tend to like uh, the more literal translations. So ESV, New King James, um, they take a more word-by-word -word translation of the Bible. And then you've got some that take more concept-by-concept concept in the translation. So the NIV is a, is a great example of that, or the J.B. JB Phillips paraphrase, which I just read from. Um, now, I like to tease my wife. She uses the NIV. Um, I typically say it is the non-inspired version. But if somebody could cover her ears right now, I'm going to lose all credibility in that joking because in all actuality, the NIV is a, is a great translation. And I love what they do with the passage here. Um, so those of you that have the NIV, you'll note that the word wisdom is in quotation marks. Um, so James is basically saying, so this so-called wisdom, right, that refers to itself as wisdom, but is, but, but is in fact not wisdom at all. Um, its origin is from three places. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So let's look first, earthly. It's basically simply to say this is not heavenly, it's worldly, right? Pretty simple. Paul addresses this same concept in Colossians. So if we look at chapter 2, verse 8, he warns us, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, Paul's saying this type of wisdom, which he's calling philosophy and empty deceit, is of the world. It's not of Christ, which is to say it's earthly, not heavenly. I know that's profound, earthly, right? Um, let me give you a practical example. Um, let's talk about creation. So does it start with, in the beginning, God? Or does it start with, in the beginning, poof, right? One of those is earthly wisdom. One of those is godly wisdom. Secondly, he says it's unspiritual. So the Greek word here is psychikos. It's uh, the, word, uh, or the root from which we get the English word psychology. Um, it's translated either sensual or natural in other translation. See, it, it, it's the wisdom that exists on a purely material plane. Instead of addressing issues of the soul as primary importance, it encourages a, a preoccupation with the body and its pleasures. Um, if we look at 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul gives us a, a, a shot of this. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So this so-called wisdom, this natural wisdom, this unspiritual wisdom, it's, it's completely devoid of God's Spirit. You don't think of terms of God or divinity to give expression to these types of things. You know, it, it reminds me of a, a conversation I had once with uh, a general counsel at a company I used to work with. Um, we all know that attorneys are incredibly wise and educated, right? So I'm having this conversation, and I'm sorry, I had to throw in a lawyer joke. Um, we had this conversation, and it came up that I was a Christian. And uh, there was three or four people in the room, and, and uh, absolutely, completely disregarding the spiritual realm of things, she looks at me and says, so 
you mean you believe that Jonah was real and that there was an ark? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> um, but see, it's, it's, it's spiritually discerned, right? It's, it's some, you have to be in touch with God and the spirit of God to appreciate those things. Otherwise, what does the Bible say? They're, they're foolishness, right? To those without the Lord. So thirdly, he says they're demonic. James is pulling no punches here. Um, this demonic source dates all the way back to the Garden of Eden. See, what was it, if you recall, uh, that the serpent really used to tempt Eve to eat of the fruit? Let's take a look at it in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, so catch this, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that, and that the tree was, sorry, and that the tree was to be desired, here it is again, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And so began humanity's infatuation with earthly wisdom. You know, as Christians, we often make two mistakes when it comes to demonic activity. Um, we either fixate on it, thereby allowing the devil um, to render us in a useless state, um, or number two, we dismiss him, as, dismiss him as irrelevant and therefore risk the, run the risk of being sabotaged. Um, I don't know if any of you have read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, but it's, it's a really great picture of demonic activity and how Satan uses these little things to take our minds off of the spiritual and focus us in the demonic. So what then should our proper response be to the devil? Well, what better place to look than to the life of Jesus? Do you remember when Jesus retreated to the wilderness to fast and pray, what happened? Right? Satan came and tempted him three times. Tempted him with power, with prestige, and with possessions. And how did Jesus respond in each case? Do you remember? With scripture, right? With, with the truth. With the word of God. So let us always remember that we have this, the sword of the spirit at our disposal as a weapon against the devil. We studied that this week, or not this week, this past semester in our community group. And the Buchanans brought that to us, so thank you. Um, when we look at the origin of earthly wisdom as a whole, what have we got, right? We said earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Sounds a lot like the three big enemies of the believer, right? The outer enemy, the world, which is to say this wisdom is earthly, our inner foe, the flesh, or the unspiritual or natural, and our stubborn adversary, the devil, which is to say demonic. I don't think there's a coincidence here. And so James asks us, who is wise and understanding among you? So that's its origin. Let's look at its operation. Verse 16a, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So this earthly wisdom, it operates in jealousy and selfish ambition. So jealousy, what, what is jealousy? Right? Feeling resentment against someone because of that person's rivalry, success, or advantages. Anybody ever struggled with that? Maybe the neighbor's brand new car that they pulled up in? Um, promotion that your colleague got at work? How about that person at the gym who's always a little bit faster or stronger than you? Or that kid in class who always seems to get that better grade? You see, I, I think we need to realize that 
engaging in jealousy or envy, it's to run completely counter to heavenly wisdom. Why? Because all that we are and all that we have is from who? It's from God, right? It's an endowment. It's nothing that we've done. God has made us who we are in his image. And by his choice, he has gifted us all in, in certain areas, right? I know I, I always wanted to sing. I always, when I first became saved, I saw the guys with the guitars and the drums. And I always thought, man, those guys are, those guys are really spiritual. Um, it's just a giftedness. And, and thank God that they are gifted, because believe me, you do not want me up here singing or playing the drums. I love to play the drums. I do it on my dashboard all the time. And uh, so, Josh, where are you at? Okay. Um, no, you, you don't want me doing that, right? God, God has gifted me differently. That's why we have Josh and Jesse and the team up here, right? Um, so, right, if, if, if you have the ability to make money, God gave you that ability. If he gave you the the ability to preach, to teach. God gave you that ability, right? <coughs> Sorry, I need to cut the other way. I'm new with the mic thing. Um, and, and, and you see, if, if he gave somebody else a gift that is more proficient than yours, that has nothing to do with that person, but it has everything to do with God. So when, you, when we're engaging in jealousy, what are we really doing? We're saying, God, I don't, I don't like how you made me. I wish you made me like that, right? Have you ever seen a kid, um, birthday, Christmas, get a gift? Let's use Christmas because it's more applicable. Opens this gift, complete joy, right? Loves this thing. He is super excited until two seconds later when he sees his brother open a different gift. And then guess what? Drops that gift and the only thing in the world that he wants is what his brother just got. Let's not be that kid, okay? God, God has given us gifts by his choosing, let's figure out what those are and use them and not be jealous of others. Secondly, earthly wisdom manifests itself in selfish ambition. See, this is the inclination to use divisive or unworthy means in promoting oneself. The Greek word here is erethia. It's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as strife or faction. I love this. It was used in early writings of Aristotle to describe the narrow partisan zeal of factional and greedy politicians. Does that sound familiar? Um, it's interesting to note that the politicians were held in such high regard then as they are today. But that is what earthly wisdom looks like. It is jealous and it is selfish. And so James asks us, who is really wise and understanding among you? All right, so let's look at this outcome. Uh, verse 16b says there will be disorder and every vile practice. So basically, this is, this is what happens when we engage in earthly wisdom, right? Disorder. It's the complete opposite of peace. You find your life in a state of chaos or confusion. Possible cause may be that we've let earthly wisdom infiltrate the life of the believer. You heard it said that, that as Christians, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world, right? There's this analogy of a boat. Um, this goes back to my youth group days, but it's, it's stuck with me all these years, right? See, a boat is designed to be on the water, right? And as long as it's on the water, it's operating perfectly. So that's like the Christian in the world. We're designed to be on the water. But what happens when too much water gets into the boat? 
when too much of the world gets into the Christian, right, we begin to sink. The result is excess, sorry, the result is disorder. Um, so let's be careful how much of the world that we let into our lives. What does this look like? Are we, are we consuming too much worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom in excess? How much time do we spend consuming worldly media? I'm going to take a jab at my kids here. Pinterest, TV, secular music. See, th those things aren't wrong, and I'm not saying that the Christians shouldn't engage in those things. What I'm saying is, is there enough balance? What are we hearing more of? Are we hearing godly wisdom more? Or are we hearing earthly wisdom? But let's be careful how much water we let into our boats. Secondly, James says the outcome is every vile practice. There's many scriptures or passages in scriptures that just have horrendous lists of sinful behavior. Some of them are unsettling to read. One such passage is in, in Mark, Mark 7, verse 21. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. See, Jesus gives us an example of every vile practice. It's not a complete list, but it's, it's pretty enlightening. See, all these things come from man's heart, which James has just listed as, as the natural source of this earthly wisdom, right? So to summarize, if you go back to my pretty little chart, right, we've got earthly wisdom. It's been laid out. James has given us its origin, earthly and spiritual and demonic, its operation, which is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and its outcome, disorder and every vile practice. Many of you know that our family is uh, involved in foster care. We've been doing it for about six years. And as part of that journey, we, we have the, the great privilege of caring for some of God's children. But we also have the opportunity uh, to encounter birth parents. And so often, um, these birth parents are hurting and sick. You see, they've, they've allowed too much earthly wisdom to find itself into their lives, and they're drowning in, a dis in, in disorder and every vile practice. We recently came a, uh, across a Facebook post uh, from one of these parents, which I'd like to share with you. And it reads, if I should die before I wake, I beg the Lord my soul to take. See me safely through the night. I don't want to wake by the morning light. I'd rather watch my family from the sky, knowing I can no longer mess up my loved one's life. I've never, I'll never be perfect or worth much, but I'll make sure my kids feel my love and touch. I don't want to hurt or hurt anyone. I just want to never wake up so this pain in hell will be done. If you don't like my post, just move on past because you don't know my life and how hard I fight and I don't think I can last. I'm tired of everything and never being able to do right. I go to sleep praying never to wake up every single night. Friends, that, that's the world around us that is indulging in earthly wisdom and they're paying the price. They're consuming it from its earthly, unspiritual, and demonic sources. They're motivated by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And sadly, we find them lost in disorder and every vile practice. And so James asks us, 
who is wise and understanding among you. Thankfully, James doesn't leave us there. He provides us with an alternative, godly wisdom. Let's look at it beginning in verse 17. First, its origin. It says, but the wisdom from above, pretty simple, in contrast to earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. This wisdom is from above. It's a reference to God. You see, out of reference for the name of God, it was and still is to this day within Orthodox Jewish communities, um, normal to substitute various titles for the name of God. So here, the word above is a clear reference to God. Um, I found this great definition in my studies over the last couple of weeks um, of godly wisdom. It, it comes from Alistair Begg. Um, I want to read it to you because I really don't think I can better it. It says, true wisdom represents the endowment of the heart and mind from God, giving us all that is necessary for right conduct as a result of right thinking. I can't do the Scottish accent, but I'll try it again. True wisdom represents the endowment of the heart and mind from God, giving us all that is necessary for right conduct as a result of right thinking. And where do we find this? Where do we, where do we get our basis for right thinking? What has God provided us, right? Pretty simple. He's given us his word right here. Perfect, infallible, inerrant. It's a gift, right? And considering the importance of that word, I love Psalm 19. Um, does a great job of, of summarizing scripture and what, what we can find in applying scripture and reading scripture and, and, and what the outcome in our lives will be. Beginning in verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord, right, which is a reference to God's word. It is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Another name for the, the word of God, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts, another name, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Brothers and sisters, might I suggest that if you reject the wisdom contained in this book, you are foolish. You are not wise. I just wanted to encourage you this morning. There is wisdom in this book. That is why God's given it to us. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have, how many abbreviations we have after our names. If the source of our wisdom is not this book, then we are not wise. It's, it's, it's that simple. Who is wise and understanding among you? So James addresses the operation of this godly wisdom next. In the second part of verse 17, he says, It is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. James starts with purity. It's not a hard concept to grasp. Just consider a, a bottle of water. Anybody have toddlers? I don't know, two, three? You ever shared a bottle of water with them at the dinner table? What does that bottle look like after they've taken that one drink? Are you going to drink out of that bottle again? The water is now impure, right? You look at it, there's all kinds of floaties. Thankfully, I'm not sharing this one with anybody. 
It's not a hard concept to grasp, but I, I love that, that, that James starts with purity and he emphasizes it. It's, 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 easy, to, it's easy to miss. Look at, look at the use of the words first, before the word pure, and then. Okay, so he's got a great list of godly attributes here. But he says, first, it's pure. And then it moves on to other things, right? Notice the prominence placed on purity. It's convicting. And as convicting as this statement is, even to my own heart, we must recognize that if we desire to live a life of godly wisdom, purity must, 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 must. Did I say that enough? It must come first. Simply put, if we're engaging in habitual sin, which is muddying our water bottle, then we're not life, we're not wise. And our life is rarely going to be accompanied by these attributes. We must get purity right first. Now we could do an entire study on all of these, but I don't want to go as long as Randy did when he preached, so I'm going to move fairly quickly through the remainder of these. I love you, brother. Um, James continues. He says, so, so first it's pure, right? Secondly, he says peaceable. The NIV says peace-loving. It's gentle or considerate. It is open to reason, which means it's willing to yield. It's submissive. It's full of mercy and good fruits, right? It's our lives exemplified by the fruits of the Spirit. It's impartial, right? James covered that in an earlier chapter. And, and it's sincere. It is without hypocrisy. So as you review this list of characteristics of godly wisdom, do these, quali do these qualities describe the operation of wisdom in your life? Are you considerate, valuing others more important than yourself? Are you open to reason, or do you demand your own way? Would others characterize you as gentle or considerate? Is your life without hypocrisy? So James asks us, who is wise and understanding among you? See, ultimately, a life governed by godly wisdom, operating in all of these characteristics, will yield the following outcome. Right? Looking at verse 8, it says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, unfortunately for me and my preference for literal translations, uh, the ESV makes this a little bit confusing. Um, but James is basically here using a farming analogy, right? Now, I'm not a farmer. I personally find the grocery store is the perfect place to get my food. Um, but if you sow wheat, what do you reap? You reap wheat. If you sow corn, you get corn, right? So James is basically saying here, if we sow peace, right, which we've seen as one of those characteristics or the operation of godly wisdom, if we sow peace, then we will reap a harvest of righteousness. So wrapping this one up, James has told us godly wisdom, its origin from above, its operation, it's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, impartial and sincere, and the outcome is peace and righteousness. Now, if you'll allow me, I'd like to move away from the text and just share a little bit of, of personal reflection, fully recognizing that this is exactly what Steve warned me against last week. Um, 
It's something that, that's, that troubles me, and I believe it's, it's, it's directly applicable to our passage today. See, we need to, as a people, understand and appreciate that ideas have consequences. There have been for generations a world system that is increasingly trying to press us as believers into its mold, right? We're warned against this in Romans 12, verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, I don't believe there's ever been a generation who hasn't seen what they perceive to be a deterioration in the morality around them. As believers, we need to be diligent and alert. See, we, we have an enemy who is actively pursuing us, and what's his end game? To destroy us, right? And it happens very subtly. So one of the first things I've, I've seen in raising my children is how self-esteem has crept into our culture and our schools seems to be the primary tenant that my children hear every day. It manifests itself in one of my favorites, the everybody gets a trophy mentality. But you see, if, if we're constantly being taught that we're good enough and we're smart enough and we're strong enough, and gosh darn it, people like me, then what need do we have for God? You see, self-esteem and, and, and promoting self-esteem, it's, it's not bad in and of itself. But we've got to be careful of what the byproduct is. And what about movements to incorporate self-help and self-improvement? We see it in churches. We see it from pastors. There are mega churches that thrive by selling it from the pulpit, compromising the word of God. You know, it sells well to our natural bend towards selfish ambition, right? Go to church, get a little bit of scripture, make myself better. Or can't we throw in a little practical advice along with a Bible verse, right? Let me ask you this. Think about the thief on the cross. What good would have a little bit of self-improvement advice done for him? He didn't need to better his life. He needed a savior, right? See, if we're, if we're sacrificing the word of God and the gospel for worldly wisdom, then we're compromising the very message of the cross. Ideas have consequences. And how about now? more widely accepted ideas on homosexuality or gender identity. You know, the common narrative tells us now that you know, God made us this way, right? But how quickly we forget that that is in direct contrast to what scripture tells us, right? That homosexuality is a sin, that God made them, male and female. Now, I realize this is touchy. And please, 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 don't misinterpret my statement as intolerance or a suggestion that we should not first prioritize God's great command to love our neighbors, okay? But we simply cannot rewrite the Bible when it doesn't fit with our modern culture. Ideas have consequences. What's gonna be the source of our wisdom? Let's close with some application. Pretty simple. The outline today lent itself very well to this, and I appreciate Pastor Steve for helping me see that. I was trying to be a little bit too creative. So the first question is, what is the source of your wisdom going to be? Is it going to be earthly, or is it going to be godly? 
Will you succumb to the philosophies of this world and compromise the word of God? Or will you hold firm to the truth? Number two, how will you operate in a world void of God's wisdom? Will you be the character of Christ to the transgender, to the homosexual, the gambler, the thief, the addict, the swindler, the prostitute, the greedy, the drunkard? See, we may be the only opportunity that they have to experience Christ's character, right? Which is pure, peaceable, gentle, full of mercy, impartial and secure, and sincere. And finally, what will the outcome of your life be? Will it be peace? Or will it be disorder in every vile practice? In closing this morning, I, I want to take you to Rockefeller Center in New York City. It's one of the most iconic buildings in America. In the lobby, which you see behind me, is a series of murals that were painted as far back as 1937. They tell an amazing story. See, they, they depict the development of America through time, through the unity of brain and brawn. The first mural, it, predicts, or it depicts primitive man working with his hands. The second portrays man advancing through the creation of tools and machinery. And the third illustrates man progressing to both master and servant of the machine that he created. And then there's a final mural. Seems a bit out of place. See, it pictures Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount, and struggling to reach him are masses of humanity. There's a small caption below in the, in the bottom left, and it reads this. Man's ultimate destiny depends not on whether he can learn new lessons or make new discoveries and conquests, but on his acceptance of the lesson taught him close upon 2,000 years ago. Brothers and sisters, we have everything we need for life and godliness right here. But we've got to decide which, which road of wisdom we will travel on. Will it be the wisdom of this world, which leads to disorder in every vile practice? Or will it be the wisdom of God, which leads us to peace? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it is clarifying. I thank you that it is relevant. And I thank you that it calls us to action. Father, I pray that you would, you would give us the sense of mind, Father, to not only hear your word this morning, but as James taught us, Lord, to be doers, to apply it to our lives, Father, to walk out of this room today and to be different, to be changed, to do something about it, Father. Help us to always rely on you as our source for wisdom, Father. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son and what he's done for us. In Jesus' name.